All right, so um, last week, where were we? So last week we were in Isaiah, right? And we were surrounded, literally, uh, by doom. Remember that? Um, Assyria's historical records. This is very fascinating. So those of you that were here last week, we, we, were, we were surrounded. We were holed up in Jerusalem uh, as the Assyrians, the superpower of the world, had come and surrounded Jerusalem, wiped out about 46 marine outposts, fortified cities on the way in. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, something happened. It was 80, 185,000 to one. And the rest of the Assyrian army went back to Assyria, never conquering Judah. The Assyrian records are fascinating because they are full of pomp and circumstance, so to speak. They are full of vainglory. They are full of praising the realities of their king and their exploits all over the world. But on this particular expedition into Judah, this is all it said. Are you ready? This is from their records. This is not the Bible. The great king of all the earth, that's King Sennacherib, surrounded Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Crickets after that. That's it. So doom was literally on our doorstep, right? Uh, the Rabshipka said to everyone hiding in Jerusalem, you're doomed. <laughs> Do this because there's still some hope to escape doom. Well, this week in Isaiah, we're, it's a completely different world. It's 100 years later, but now we're in Babylon. So doom is no longer on your doorstep. Doom is in your living room. Doom is everywhere. So Israelite moms are absolutely defeated. I am doom, they say. You have Israelite students who are bitter. God failed. I trusted him. You have Israelite singles wanting to marry, wanting to love and be loved, wanting to have a family who are completely disillusioned. Why, God? What's happening, God? You have Israelite leaders. You know the type. Visionaries. How to see people, you know? How to see. How? Here's how you see. These are the let's do it people. These are the people that the cup is not half empty. The cup is always half full. The risk takers. The leaders in Israel are depressed. I am despair. Isaiah 40 is a different world. Completely different world from last week. A completely different world from the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Doom was threatening, but doom hadn't come. Doom has come. But there's a catch. This different world is not what we think. Because right away we're starting to think, oh, the histories. You know, we're starting to think of the places. We're starting to think of the different world of Babylon instead of Judah or Jerusalem or even Assyria. And we're starting to think of, well, it was, you know, dooms in the living room when it used to be on the doorstep. We're going in that direction already. We're thinking of the histories, the people, the places, the moral stories to be learned from the story. But that's not the different world. And then there's the different world. It's so confusing for the experts. It's not what they think either. Because what they literally think, it's a different world of another Isaiah. Literally, they have three Isaiah, some of the experts. 
Isaiah 1 writes 1 through 39, Isaiah 2, 40 through 55, and Isaiah 3, 56 through 66. There are three different Isaiahs because the world is so different, according to some Bible experts. <laughs> Quick response, because those of you that take a, our class, I know, because this, you know, this is a university town, you're going to take a religion course, and you're going to be told probably in the religion course that there are three Isaiahs, three different Isaiahs. Uh, here's the response. According to the book of Isaiah, there's only one. According to the book, it says the vision of Isaiah, son of Amaz. It doesn't say the visions, three, of Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 3. And not only that, the other response is this, that Jesus and the apostles, they quoted passages from all sections of Isaiah and said, thus says the prophet of Isaiah. So according to the book itself, and according to Jesus and the apostles of the New Testament, there's only one Isaiah. He wrote the whole book. Okay? Done with that apologetic sidebar. So what is the different world of Isaiah? We've still got to figure it out, right? What is it? If it's not some moral story from the characters and people and places, is how we tend to read it for instruction. And it's not the different world of a completely different set of Isaiahs talking about two different kinds of places and worlds. What is it? When you're defeated, I am doom. You need a different kind of comfort. When you're bitter, God failed. I trusted him. You need a different kind of comfort. When you're disillusioned, why, God? What's happening, God? You need a different kind of comfort. When you're depressed, I am despair. You need a different kind of comfort. Isaiah 40 is a different world of comfort. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page by the power of your spirit and bring the comfort that this passage talks about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at verse 1 together. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is a double comfort, which means it's a perfect comfort. Also, you see that comfort up there? That's a Hebrew verb that's called the PL. You know what that means? It's the most intense verb there is in the Hebrew language. It's intense. It's intensive, it's comprehensive, it's concentrated, it's complete. If you look at speak tenderly, 
Let's go to verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That literally means speak to the heart. The illustrations in the ancient world were like a lover speaking to another lover, wanting to speak to their heart, wooing, getting to the heart. So this is not a debate. This is not a lecture. This is not even a persuasive speech. This is a way of speaking that connects with the heart. It reaches the heart. It hits the heart. It hits home in the heart. So double comfort, as we can see right away, comes from God and it connects with the heart. Do you see that? So that's what, if you want to know, the big idea. What's the big idea? Double comfort. It comes from God. It connects with the heart. And this is the kind of comfort you need. This is the kind of comfort that only can comfort you truly, completely, at all the hard, unreached places. Some of us, though, in this room are traditionalists, right? Uh, so we do comfort traditionally. Uh, some call it the Stoic way, which was made famous by the Greeks and the Romans a long time ago. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans, they end up coming after the Persians who conquer the Babylonians, who conquered the Assyrians. So there's a little Bible history right there. This is also called the religious way. So in religious circles, uh, the traditional way of comfort is called the religious way. If you're familiar with this language, it's the older brother way. It's a moralistic way. Uh, for those of you that are into personalities, I don't know what the Enneagram is, which one it is. Those numbers just confuse the daylights out of me. But in the old way, you were called type A. This is the type A way. Okay. Today's text... If we are in the world of this text, this would be the religious leader way. Okay? What is that? It's comfort by stuffing pain. So if you want to get comfort, you have to stuff pain. The only way to have comfort in life, the only way to feel comfort in life is to stuff it. It's to deny it, right? Now, if there was an Isaiah 4, he would call that single comfort. He would call it incomplete comfort. He would call it comfort that does not connect to heart. It does not connect to your pain. And mental health experts all over today, everyone's unanimous. This is an unhealthy way to live. Stuffing pain is completely unhealthy because it breaks out in other areas of your life, physically, emotionally, relationally, mentally. So the traditional way, I think we all can affirm, pretty much the culture affirms today, that's not a healthy way to find comfort. Now, some of you, though, in this room are also progressives, right? I'm an equal opportunity offender, so I'm going to move to the progressives now. And you do comfort the progressive way. This was made famous in the, called the postmodern way. It was made famous in the 1960s by the generation after the World War II generation, the kids after World War II. They were called hippies. This is the irreligious way. If you're in a religious world, they call this the irreligious way. You might be familiar with what's called the younger brother way. Some might call it the relativistic way. Today's text would call it, in the world of today's text, the Babylonian way. They were the modern, postmodern way in that day. Well, what is that? The progressive way of finding comfort is to escape your pain. So traditionalists want to stuff it. Progressives want to escape from it. And so the way you escape from it is you indulge your heart. You self-manufacture comfort. 
You create your own comfort. And sadly, today, it's not as unanimous about being an unhealthy way. Sadly, today, ecclesiastical leaders, cultural leaders, political leaders, educational leaders, mental health expert leaders are not unanimous that this is an unhealthy way. But the Bible says this is an unhealthy way. Isaiah 4, if he existed, he'd say this is single comfort. This is incomplete comfort. This is comfort that does not reach the heart and does not connect to real pain. Isaiah 4 gives you double comfort. This is the comfort you need. So, what is double comfort? Let's look at verse 1 again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. So here it comes. Cry to her what? Here comes the comfort. At first pass, we're like, what is going on in this text? But as the text opens up, I told you last week that my job as a preacher is not to make the text come alive, but it is to help you see some of the texture, some of the terrain, some of the color in the text. The Holy Spirit shines on the page. So look at that, her warfare. Do you see that? That, her warfare. Notice that, cry to her, that. Then there's another, that. And then there's another, that. There's three that's. So this is the content of the comfort. So her warfare. Her warfare means comprehensive doom. It is an image for comprehensive doom. In the ancient world, when you talk warfare, you talked about exhaustive, complete, comprehensive, multi-aspected doom. Relationally, personally, politically, societally, culturally, family, home, institutions. Doom. Devastation. I am doom would be a good way that warfare is described. That, let's go, cry out that her warfare, her doom is ended. It's over, it's done, it's finished. Now, the next that, this next that is saying that is, in other words, it's expanding, it's answering, it's telling you why. So I'm just going to put in because, because that helps. Because her iniquity is pardoned. Now, immediately, right now, all of us are thinking sin as a presence. Iniquity is sin's presence. Iniquity is sin's power. In other words, iniquity is talking about sin's DNA, the nature of sin and the works of sin, and that is not what this iniquity is talking about. So what is it talking about? Well, here's what we know so far. Number one, doom ends because of something to do with iniquity. So make sure we get that. Doom ends. Comprehensive doom. Pick your idea of doom. Is it cultural doom? Is it institutional doom? Is it doom in your family? Is it doom in your mental, emotional makeup? Is it doom in your physical suffering? According to this text, doom ends because of something to do with iniquity. So what is this iniquity? Here we go. Because her iniquity is pardoned. It literally means, and I wish they put the literal translation in because it's absolutely clearer. Literally, because her iniquity is paid. Paid. So iniquity isn't about sin's nature. 
Iniquity is about sin's debt. The debt is paid. Now, how would a normal, ordinary, boring Israelite hear this text? You're in Babylon. Doom isn't on the doorstep. You're, you're, it's 100 years later, so you'd be maybe like the grandchildren of those that were holed up like a bird in a cage by the Rathsheba, by Assyria, and surrounded. And it was 185,000 to one, and the 185,000 lost. Now you're the grandchildren, and you're in Babylon. How do you hear this text? How do you hear these words? in two amazing ways. Because every Israelite, boring, ordinary, normal Israelite would hear it in two ways. First, she would hear, the day you eat of it, you will die. She'll hear Genesis 3. And she'll say, she'll hear, the debt is paid. The debt that unleashed all doom into the world And she will see that the doom of the bigger Babylon has ended. The Babylon that has overthrown and exiled the whole world, sin's debt is paid. And she would see and she would feel in her very being, doom being uprooted. Because the symptoms called doom are there because of the sickness called sin's debt. And when that debt is paid, all doom is being uprooted. She can feel it. She can feel the fact that all sin and evil and injustice and oppression is being uprooted. She can feel that disease, poverty, suffering, satanic oppression is being uprooted. She can feel that defeat Bitterness, disillusion, despair is being uprooted. She can feel it in her own life. She can feel it in the home. She can feel it at church. She can feel it in communities and institutions in the culture. She can feel the debt is paid, has just uprooted, just ended doom. She feels it. The second amazing thing she feels or she hears as obey me and you stay in the land. She hears the first five books of the Bible. She hears that the national sin of Israel is paid. In other words, she's hearing, we're going back home. And they do. The debt is paid. This is double comfort. Double comfort is the debt is paid, it is paid in full, which means now all the uprooting of all doom in the world is in the middle of being uprooted. In your life, in your home, in your communities, everywhere. And one day it'll be so uprooted, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. All doom gone. But it started the moment the debt is paid. You see, that debt being paid 
it carries with it all comfort. There is no comfort outside of that debt being paid. The Apostle Paul, probably he was reflecting on this passage. He writes this incredible, incredible. I mean, there's so much ink spilt on Colossians 2 where he actually starts talking about this iniquity being pardoned as the cosmic epicenter, the cosmic cause for all comfort, for all good, for everything that's living to happen. Hear what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh, basically saying you were in the realm of the dead, Uh, you were in exile, you were in Babylon. You were in your sinful nature and the realm that it lives in called the flesh. We tend to personalize this so much and say my flesh, but in the Bible and the Paul, there's certainly your flesh when you're a Christian, I mean, when you're not a Christian, and then when you become a Christian, you become spirit. So when you're not a Christian, you're flesh, which means you're one person with one nature. You become a Christian, you're one person with two natures, flesh and spirit. And personally, individually, that's called flesh and spirit. But we forget that this is also on what's called a more global level, the age of the flesh and the age of the spirit. Two ages that run parallel to each other, side by side with each other, okay? We'll talk more about that on Theology After Dark. But you were in the realm of the dead, okay? God made alive. New realm, new age. He made you alive, got it? together with him. So God gives you life. He gives you resurrected life. He gives you all the comfort and all the hopes of all the world that everybody's looking for. And that one phrase, God made you alive, encompasses everything you long for and everything you hope for and everything you want to be and everything you desire, you're made alive. The age of life has come amidst the age of death, the age of the spirit life, the age of death Sin, the realm of the dead. But how did God do this? How did these two, how did this age get conquered, this age take place? Not only like globally and cosmically and epically like right now, but in you. Answer, having forgiven us all our trespasses, he might as well have said, having pardoned all our iniquity. And in case we missed it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The age of life happened because a debt was paid. The cause of life is a debt is paid. Let's continue. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, that Jesus pays the debt. On the cross, if you want to know what's happening on the cross, certainly it's demonstrating his love for you. Certainly it's showing a multifaceted, delightful aspects of the character of God and the wonder of God. But the Bible makes absolutely clear the most central, true meaning and purpose of the cross is to pay a debt. A sin debt. 
So Jesus is condemned. Jesus is exiled. Jesus is kicked out of the garden. He's cut in half by the flaming sword. The debt is paid, and this is the root of everything. So what's the result of paying the debt? Well, in this class, this is why this is such a classic passage. We already saw the result of the debt is making you alive, but here's the other one, and this is where everybody gets really, it's really kind of fun. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Do you see that? This is absolutely incredible. How does he disarm the rulers? How did he disarm the cosmic, evil, primal forces in the world? So remember in the realm of the dead, there's lords in the realm of the dead. There are citizens in the realm of the dead, and there are lords in the realm of the dead. And how does he conquer these lords? Triumph over them by paying the debt. By paying sin's debt, the lords of the dead no longer have any prosecutional control over you. Amazing. My debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Savior spilled. Double comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. So let's have some practical help, can we? Here's the first thing. For practical help, this is why this is so important. You know why there are so many theories of the atonement? One, I I can't stand that word. Theory of the atonement. The atonement is like a suitcase. If I come up here and I take a suitcase, the atonement is like a suitcase. It's a suitcase word. It's a comprehensive word about what Christ has accomplished. You go into that suitcase called the atonement and you pull out different clothing, different aspects of the atonement, different angles of the atonement. Or we could say it this way, the atonement is a diamond, the most expensive, beautiful, breathtaking. It's so brilliant, you can barely look at it. It's so beautiful that when you do, it's your precious. And there are many cuts on that diamond and each cut gives you an aspect of what Christ has done. And so theories of atonement take one aspect of the cut and they make it the one that rules them all. And if you take one aspect of what Jesus has done and you make it the aspect, apart from the other aspects, you end up negating them and you end up having a bodybuilder with no legs. This thing becomes everything and no legs. And then it becomes untrue because you just made it everything. Do you see how this works? So here's what I'm saying. This is so important. Be a good theologian. Your comfort is at stake. Know the difference between the sickness and the symptoms. Today, everybody's focusing on the symptoms. They're taking one aspect of doom and completely dissecting it, experimenting with it, observing it, making all kinds of great observations of it. And I'm like, great, great. Thank you. Thank you for showing me the different Degrees of darkness and doom. Thank you for the Ted Bundy thing on Netflix. No thanks. I don't need to go into that. I know it's evil. But we're experts today. We're dissecting doom everywhere. We're dissecting the symptoms everywhere. 
And we're trying to treat the symptoms and we don't even know what the sickness is. And according to Bible, the sickness is the debt. The sickness that produces all the symptoms of doom is sin's debt needs to be paid. Sin's debt is the sickness, it's the cause, it's the root. Doom and all its aspects are the symptoms, the effects, the fruit. Get those in line, because if you don't, you're going to be spending all your time on symptoms, and you're never going to have a solution. Never. You will never be able to bring comfort to anybody. No one. There'll be no comfort, comfort, my people. There will only be another strategy, another Band-Aid, another ibuprofen tablet, and never treat the sickness itself. Whole theological systems have been built around not knowing the difference between the sickness and the symptoms. And the first one to go is the debt, the legal debt. Instead, we want to talk about the dark powers, And so we have Christ as victor. And when we end up not knowing about sin's debt being the epicenter that produces all the doom, we don't know about the justification that pays the debt and carries all the life with it. And if you look at theology today, I'm going a little too much here. I already know. I can can just see my wife nodding. Honey, move, move, move. You're teaching too much. That's why justification is always the first thing to go. Because it deals with the sickness. All right, one of the clearest modern theologians in a long time, a guy named Michael Horton, says it this way. I think this is really such a great quote. Bear with me. Although the plight of doom is many-sided, Scripture frequently identifies the basis of all our woes and condemnation. In other words, the basis of all woes is in condemnation. Death is a legal sentence, a covenantal sanction imposed for treason. We are the plaything of evil powers and captive to Satan because the charges that he brings against us before God are well-founded. And we are corrupt in our sinful nature, right? We're corrupt. We're in the flesh because we are guilty from conception by union with Adam. Our exclusion from God's presence is demanded by God's goodness, justice, and holiness. In other words, listen, it's not... It's, it's this simple. If we, if God is life and we say no to life, I don't want you, I don't want life, this is sin, what else is there? Sin's debt is, the wrath of God is, you move in death. If you leave life, all there is is death. Let's just do another one. Let's say if God is love, and you reject love, sin, you turn away from love, you don't trust this love, you want to trust yourself, so you move towards loneliness and alienation. Sin's debt. Let's pick one more. If God is life, and we leave life, I don't want life, light. I don't want light. Don't want it. There's darkness. Sin's debt. Sin carries exile with it. It carries a debt, right? And that's what's being said here. So know the difference between the sickness, the debt, and the symptoms, which is all the doom that's going on today. 
All right, be comforted. Here's the second practical help. Be a good theologian. You're going to be a theologian. Everyone's a theologian, so you're either going to be a good one or a bad one, so you might as well be a good one. And if your comfort is at stake, be a good one. The second practical help is learn to be comforted by your debt being paid. This is a truck that when it hits you, it's loaded with fruit. For instance, those of you that are defeated, I am doomed. When my debt is paid, when that starts working itself into your mind and working itself into your heart and working itself into that area of defeat and working itself into that area that crushes you, there's no such thing as doom anymore for you. I am doomed doesn't exist anymore. Your debt is paid. Doom is ended. Those of you who are bitter, God failed. I trusted him. I've had that kind of a week. You failed. I trusted you. Those of you that are bitter, and so I'm telling you right now, I'm bitter. My wife knows I'm bitter. Notice what happens after the that, after your debt is paid, the next that. Let's go up there, can we? Let's see. Uh, two, let's go to two. I think it might be in two. Okay, good. See that that her iniquity is pardoned? Your debt's paid. That's the debt is paid. Look at the next that that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's unbelievable. In other words, what's happening here is that God can take all your bitterness. And you know what he does? He goes, be bitter. I will give you double my love in your bitterness. Be angry. I will give you double my grace in your anger. Your debt is paid. I only give comfort now. That's all I give. So you're free to be bitter. And you're free to be angry. He loves you in your bitterness. He loves you when you're mean. And he loves you in it and through it and out of it. Your debt is paid. He only gives you comfort now. Those of you who are disillusioned, why God? What's happening, God? Notice what the voice says. Do you see that in verse 3? The voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So God shows up in the wilderness. God shows up in the desert. God shows up in Babylon, in exile. So what this means is sometimes when he shows up, he absolutely removes the wilderness from you. Other times when he shows up, he overrides the wilderness that you're in. He doesn't remove it, he just overrides it. And then one day, because of the debt being paid, there will be no more wilderness. And so for now, in your wilderness, God says to you, all you who are disillusioned. Why? What's happening? I am your comfort. That's what he's saying to you in this text. 
I show up in the wilderness. I come for you in the wilderness. I show up in the desert. I'm your comfort. Lastly, those of you who are depressed, I am despair, right? Did you notice how crucial the voice is in the text? Did you hear it over and over again? Listen to this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So comfort, this is so important. If you're depressed, if you're in despair, notice how important the voice is in the text. It's the voice. The voice is bringing comfort from the outside in. The voice is speaking comfort into you. That means comfort is an outside-in phenomenon. Comfort is never an inside-out phenomenon. Never. So if you're depressed or you're despair, if you're despairing, don't listen to your voice, your inner voice. You'll just stay depressed. But listen to the voice coming from the outside in. That comfort, comfort, says God. Speak tenderly, says God. Cry to her, says God. Comfort is a gospel voice. Comfort is a good news voice speaking to you. So the best thing you can do when you're discouraged and you're depressed is hear the voice of the gospel. Crying to you, speaking to you. And that's why we say things around here like, be spoken back to life again. If you're dead, if you're defeated, if you're bitter, if you're disillusioned, if you're in despair, the answer isn't turning inward and trying to figure it out and trying to fix it. The answer is be spoken back to life again. Your help comes from the outside, not from you. Okay. I'm going to end on this. We're going to use this at Patrick's funeral. Have you heard the Heidelberg Catechism question number one? Have you all heard that? It goes like this. This is the, the beginning of a confession, the very first question. You know, you'd be thinking, okay, I'm going to write a confession. What do I do? Do I start with God? Do I start with the Bible? I don't know. Do you start with the magnificence of the multifaceted attributes of God? But then how do I tell him that if I don't tell him the Bible first? I mean, you get in that whole debate, right? Bible first, God's word first, because that's where you learn about God. Start with God, because everything starts with God. In the beginning, God, you know, that's how I would start thinking about a systematic theology or a confession, so just hope I never write one. Here's how the Heidelberg begins. Question number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Not who is God. Not this is what the Bible is. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. But belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior. That's it. Do you see this? And notice what he says. How, how do you know this? I mean, you can just hear him. I can hear him. How do we know this? He has fully paid for all my sins by his precious blood. My debt is paid. That's how he knows. And then it goes in and says, and here's all the wonderful things that happen because your debt is paid. Like he sets you free from the tyranny of the devil. That's great. That's good to know. I don't have to look under my bed anymore. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. This is incredible comfort. No matter what happens to you, it can't happen unless God says it happens. 
In fact, here's the other result. All things must work together for my good, for my comfort, for my salvation. What is your only comfort in life? You know what Jesus says to you? Me. Me. 